And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read, but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I am Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club, where this week we are talking about Binti by Nettie Akorafor. Do you want to give a summary about this novella, Maggie, or should I? I can go for it. Let's let's see what I come up with. <laughs> <laughs> so Binti is about a girl named Binti who is an extraordinarily talented mathematician. In this book, it's referred to as being a harmonizer she like sees the mathematical harmony in the universe and is invited to an extraordinarily prestigious university to fulfill her dreams essentially of becoming a harmonizer but in order to do that she has to leave her very traditional family in a a small himba village in namibia where people don't leave and So she has to essentially leave everything she's ever known behind to chase her dreams. And then on the way to the university, she and her ship are attacked by an alien race called the Meduse, who have a grudge against these other humans called the Kush, I believe is how you pronounce it. They had committed atrocities against the Meduse, and the Meduse are there essentially to take revenge And Binti ends up escaping from this attack because she's been given something called uh, a godstone and it ends up protecting her. So she's able to like hole up for a while and eventually is able to come to an agreement where she ends up being the ambassador for the Medusa once they land on the planet where this university is. And she's able to help restore some harmony between the Medusa and other humans as well as other alien life forms who had essentially committed extreme sacrilege against their chief. So it's it's a story about harmony, I think, in more ways than one in that sense. And it's also in many ways a survival story because a lot of it takes place while she's just trying to like survive this attack. So it's kind of multi-layered in that sense. The attack is like the plot of it, but what's actually going on is a lot deeper than that. I think I want to add to that there is a, a big theme of identity throughout this novel, because as you mentioned before, she is a part of the Himba peoples, which is a real group of peoples, as Maggie stated, living in Nambia. Is that how you say that? Namibia. Namibia. Right. So that's a real group of peoples. And this this novella plays a lot with their traditions and their culture. And then throughout the story, I think Binti really finds because she's going against her tradition and culture just by being a part of this university she really finds her own sense of identity that allows her to combine this new self and this new identity of going to university to be a master harmonizer 
along with her old cultural identity, which we can see in the mud edgies. Right. So I think identity is also a big theme. But let's talk a little bit about context, because one of the things that I want to just give everyone a briefer on before we dive into this novella is Afrofuturism, which is, I'm taking this directly from Wikipedia, everyone, a cultural aesthetic, or also it can be a genre. And Afrofuturism is cool because it works a lot with science fiction. And it's essentially the taking of African cultures and updating them so that they exist in, in the future and, and so that you can do cool things within that. Because a lot of science fiction that we see tends to focus only on either the Western world or like Asian countries, I think. We, can, we also see sometimes in science fiction, but we don't really get a lot of African culture. And there's a really great podcast that This American Life did on Afrofuturism that I'm going to link in our show notes that everyone should listen to. It's wonderful. But one of the big things that stuck from with me from that podcast, which I've listened to a few times at this point, is this idea of like Afrofuturism inherently being hopeful and this idea that Africans or, you know, African-American, like people of African descent are going to exist in the future because the world, especially in the United States, has been so adamant about, uh, like adamant about tearing African lives down or Black lives down. So it can be a really hopeful sort of genre and it's just really cool. And I really like it and it really resonates with me because I really latch on to that idea of hope. I agree. And I think that Akorafor does a really great job. From what I can tell, it seems really well researched of Himba culture. She's Nigerian, of Nigerian descent. So it's not, as for, from what my research, it's not like quite an own voices novel in that sense, because she's talking about a different country and African culture. But she does just a really seamless job of merging identity and interesting parts about Himba culture with this scientific future in a way that I don't know. I just really enjoy it. I'm not usually that into short fiction, but this one really did it for me. Me too. Not so much during the beginning, but somewhere in the middle, middle, I was like, Oh, I'm here. We're here. I'm here for the long roll. What were some of the other themes that you noticed in this Maggie? Cause I have like two, but you have a few more. I, I think that a lot of mine relate to identity as well. The idea of defying tradition of ostracization and racism, I think especially when related to Binti's body, which is really interesting, both in very overt racism in the fact that when Binti leaves her village for the first time, she's subjected to a lot of things that Uh, I hear at the very least Black Americans talk about as being absolute no-goes, like the fact that people touch her hair without her consent. Uh, Specifically, they talk down about uh, her ajis, and they also spend a lot of time (laughs) talking in front of her like she isn't there and like she doesn't exist, specifically while commenting about her appearance and her hair. And then later in the novella, there's also a lot of talk about body and what she consents and doesn't consent to when it comes to change. So those are things that I also noticed that really 
spoke to me again about identity. And I think for me, this novella is largely about growth and change and the ways in which one decision that at the time you feel very in control of can force you to grow and change in ways that you don't necessarily anticipate as well. Um, Binti, you know, makes the decision to go to this university and she feels confident about it, though sad, because she feels very much like doing this is going to make her cut ties with her family forever and with her culture. And she's really worried about that, but still feels like it's the right path for her. And then because of this unforeseen circumstance with this hostile takeover of the ship she's on, she's forced to change and grow in ways that she couldn't have ever anticipated when she initially left. So there's like this mix between the amount that you have control over your over your own fate and your destiny to a certain extent that I picked up on because she does have control and yet there's still things that happen that are outside of her control. That's a really interesting point. I wonder how the idea of change relates to travel, I guess, in a world in which we can literally go visit other worlds versus just being hammered into the the like earth, right? Because we have so many different cultures here and Yet, I mean, Binti herself comes from a very, very small culture. And in our world, it's also a very, very small culture. And insulated as well. Yeah, and insulated. So she's not exposed to anyone and no one on the outside is really exposed to her, it seems. And now she's going to somewhere where there's like a universe of diversity, right? Like she gets to, when she finally gets to the university... It's not just humans, which kind of took me by surprise. There's a lot of, like, bug creatures. Yeah, in fact, the, the university she goes to is less than 5% human, is is what the novel says. Yeah, so I guess how how does that idea of, like, going somewhere else and leaving your culture relate to change, I guess? Like, how does travel in of itself um relate on a symbolic level to change I think to me it really speaks to the idea that if you when you expose yourself to other cultures with the idea that you're coming to try and actually understand that inherently changes you because for Binti the change actually happens when she starts learning more about the Medusa culture and the grievances that were done to them by the Kush people. And on the one hand, the change, the ultimate change that is wrought to her, which is that her hair is essentially turned into their tentacles. The description made reminded me very much of almost like jellyfish like creatures. Me too. I was like, and- are they just jellyfish creatures? Yeah, something very similar at the very least. And that part of the change, she doesn't necessarily consent to because she's stung so that she can understand them without her godstone. 
but it still comes from a point that it was only when she started listening to actually understand what was going on, even if it was coming from the selfish motivation of trying to save her own skin, that she was actually affected by what she was seeing and what she was hearing and then able to become their ambassador. So I think that some of it talks about the fact that you have to be open to change for change to actually happen to you. (laughs) And I think that that's especially true when you're talking about cross-cultural divides. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What you mentioned before in terms of the the hair and then turning into tentacles, I guess would be the right word. I don't know because they're jellyfish-like creatures. But that that sounds like that's a very big physical change, which is important because Binti herself is so marked by physical differences compared to other humans in, in terms of like where she is now on the ship or just as soon as she leaves home. But I think that the change starts from the very beginning when we see her simply make the decision to leave because she's giving up on her culture And I also think this plays in really well with a theme that I noticed while reading this that I'm not entirely sure how to articulate. I feel like this book is structured to kind of give us throwbacks to Orientalism, if that makes sense, like this idea of difference, but to instead place us in the the eye of of the person that we're holding um, as different, like in the eye of the quote-unquote oriental, right, if we're looking at orientalism. And I think that, I believe that the book is structured this way because we're in a futuristic world and we're introduced to the Himba people and there isn't really any, there isn't a lot of context for all of these new things that are being thrown at us. Like nothing is directly handed to us in terms of how the world building in this story works we get context clues for what things like harmonizer means, but there, no one, there's no set definitions that somebody is handing us. So we're immediately placed into this world that is unlike our world, even though there are similarities and even though the person is coming from our world, it's a very like small population. And it's a very, this group of people has a lot of different customs that people would be easy to exoticize So I think that concept of difference is important. And I guess I'm struggling with this idea of how the person who is othered is supposed to change. Because that's kind of what happens. Binti is the other and we're in her mind from the get-go. But then she does end up changing, but she doesn't end up losing her old identity completely. I think that there's a lot of interesting things that you just said there that are difficult to wrestle with because the fact that the hair changes is really important. Binti is very, very proud of her hair. Uh, Her hair is um, also culturally very important because she coats it with the G's uh, and also culturally important because she's able to braid it so that it's coated to represent her entire family tree which is really important. So it's it's really central to this cultural identity issue that we're talking about. I think the second thing that's interesting as well is that I agree with you that the change does start from the very beginning when she chooses to leave. 
right? From the fact that on page three, you know, she's defying tradition. She talks about the fact that the quote says, no man wanted a woman who would run away. Like she wouldn't fulfill her duties as a wife in her culture. Uh, she talks later in the novella about the fact that she's not acting like a proper woman would in her culture. So like right away, you're right, that change does start happening. I think that to your last point where this novella gets even more complicated is the fact that you're right at the beginning. Binti is the ostracized one and is kind of the odd one out. But very quickly when she gets on the ship, she really discovers that her and the other humans there don't have as many differences as they initially think. She makes fast friends, good friends, really quickly with many of the other girls. She's got a crush on this boy. Um, they all have a very similar method of thinking about the world, which is called treeing, which has to do with this um, mathematical harmonizing scenario. So on the one hand, she is being othered. But then on the other hand, she's assimilated and assimilating and finding commonalities more than differences with her fellow humans really, really quickly. And then is othered again when she's the only human left versus these aliens. So like, there's so much, I think when it comes to change and othering in that sense, there's a lot to unpack because on the one hand, the book sort of suggests that like humans have more in common than we give ourselves credit for, but also complicates that notion deeply because cultural identities are differences. They just can be positive differences. And she has the most, you know, adversity with the Medusa, but even then finds that like there are commonalities there. So I agree with you that I don't know what to make of it, but I, I think it's because it's very wonderfully complicated. I think one of the interesting parts of this book, based off of what you just said, is this idea that she transcends all of these differences through shared values and through ideas. And even when they get to the university, which the book, I don't think we've talked about this yet, but the Medusa, the Medusa King, I don't know, did you bring this up in your summary? The Medusa Chief. The Medusa Chief's stinger is held at a museum at the university. And it was stolen from him. And that's a big theme throughout the book that I'm sure Maggie has a ton of opinions on because. (laughs) I work for exams. Yeah. (laughs) But to that point, like the, the book itself doesn't let the university off the hook, but it ends up resolving itself very neatly, I feel, in a way that I can't see actually happening in our current structure or society. and. I feel as though it's expected that it will be resolved, that this this stinger will be given back to the chief because the university is full of learned people and they're supposed to value things like learning and integrity. And, you know, stealing is not integrity. So I don't know. Do you feel that way that this idea that like the book is pushing um, for ideas to be our unifier? I feel really conflicted about this, honestly, because on the one hand, I also expected things to be wrapped up neatly. But the book did explicitly say that when Binti is able to sort of broker this piece that she's done the impossible, like multiple people say this to her, that she's, you know, ended essentially this war and this animosity and all of these things. 
I think that there is to a certain extent some implication that like it is about being learned but I think it's also about listening with empathy to a certain extent as well like there she's able to explain it to say like you took this most sacred body part essentially from this chief it was desecration like that's objectively fucked up you know and and people are and the university board from what I could tell you know all of these professors are able to take that and be like they argue about it there are clearly people that don't agree there are people that do agree but they come to the same conclusion so I feel like I don't necessarily know what the book is trying to say because on the one hand it says so explicitly that she's done the impossible but on the other hand I feel like especially given what you were talking about with Afrofuturism and hope like this is a very hopeful novel that like if you listen with empathy if you listen to understand other people's struggles then we can stop violence and we can start negotiating peacefully and we can understand everyone's struggles because ultimately that's what ends up happening when Binti stops fighting the Medusa or and threatening them, and they, you know, stop doing the same to her, um, Oku brings her, you know, food as sort of a, a peace offering to a certain extent. Uh, that's when they're able to start moving forward together. And then again, the same thing is true at the university. So I don't know what Akorafor really wanted us to get from the fact that it was supposed to be impossible and she did it anyways, except for maybe the fact that we talk all the time about the fact that we have, you know, like irreconcilable differences between our fellow humans. And it turns out that maybe if we actually shut the fuck up and listened for a little while to how and why other people felt the way they did, maybe we would have a lot less (laughs) irreconcilable differences. I don't think I have necessarily like a an answer to your question I'm sort of of two minds about it but those are that's where I go in response no that's really interesting so that makes me think about the idea of story and how that plays a place in this novella because you're talking about empathy which wasn't something that I had considered before which is silly because this book does like in order for her to make friends and to harmonize and make peace, like you need empathy, right? That should be a given. But when I think of empathy and how we give other people empathy, I know from my personal lens and like the way I I try to invoke that in my life is through story. And I know that this is something that has been proven successful in terms of like how reading develops empathy, but I feel could be successful for any sort of story, right? Because that's how you end up learning how to empathize. You need, you need to be able to identify with the narrative. And I think that throughout this novella, we see how story plays a role in terms of how Binti is misinformed about the Medusa in terms of how Binti and the other people that she's interacting with, they're also kind of, it sounds like they wear head coverings of some sort. And maybe, I don't, I don't know. It, it, it's like some sort of future world. Anyway. Akorafor <laughs> says on her Twitter that the Kush are clearly written as Arab and the Himba are clearly Black African. So. Oh, okay. Okay. That makes sense. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate that. Anyway. Yes. So. In terms of her interactions with the the Kush, um, they themselves don't 
seem to like have the right narrative of her, but they already have a built narrative. And then she is like building her story physically on her body with her ajis. I think. Ajis, yes. So she's building it physically with her ajis and with her braids when she's putting in her family's code, right? So like she has a narrative that she broadcasts in the way that she presents herself physically. So I don't know. I guess that this idea of story is something I want to know more about what you think about. Think about it as somebody that's worked in museums and that does work in terms of historical interpretation and whether you think that is an important theme throughout the book. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard to say because as I think I've mentioned here on the, as I know I've mentioned here on the podcast before, I did my entire thesis on empathy in museums and how it can be developed. And it was largely based on stories because I was also a literature major. And that's where my interest, like that's the intersection where my interests lie to begin with. And the fact that you're absolutely right, things like reading and exposure to the arts, especially when you do those things diversely, are proven to increase people's empathy abilities. Because empathy is not as innate in us as we sometimes think that it is. There's parts of it that are like when you think of mirror neurons and the fact that for many people, if they look at somebody who's physically in pain, they feel a similar reaction to that emotionally. But like when you go beyond that, when we were talking about true human connection, that's a muscle that you have to move and and stretch and figure out. So I think that narrative is really important here. I, I don't think I have firm answers for how it plays into the story because on the one hand, like, we're reading a story that's to me very clearly about empathy. But on the other hand, the narrative here isn't quite as story-based. Like it's more conversational, you know, it's not like Binti or even, you know, the Kush with the Himba, you know, like purposefully expose themselves to these narratives, so to speak. It comes about much more naturally, just like through interaction and conversation and then with Binti and the Meduse through uh dire circumstances in which <laughs> if they don't come to a situation to some kind of you know uh conclusion Binti's gonna die so yeah narrative is really interesting when it comes to the museum stuff to me this feels like a really clear callback to the fact that in the western world there's a really 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 big issue with stolen objects that are never repatriated to their original cultures. In the United States, it's especially prevalent, although not exclusive to, you know, indigenous cultures here. And in Europe, it's, I mean, a a famous example is like a European country versus a European country with the Parthenon marbles that are in the British Museum and should really be in Greece but is also a huge issue with various African cultures that have important sacred artifacts in museums in Europe that they cannot get back. So to me, to a certain extent, that part feels like a real obvious call out, you know, to say like, this shouldn't be that hard. This is important and sacred to these people and therefore they should be able to have it back. And that's of course an oversimplification of a complicated matter in the sense of like, what objects are where in the world. Um, But 
yeah, I don't know. To me, it just all comes back to the fact that, like, you just have to listen to other people and then also treat them like they're people. And the fact that they, that people want to have the things that are culturally important to them and cultural identifiers isn't novel, you know? <laughs> it's, it's not, it, it's not, it shouldn't be so hard. Which is interesting to me as well, because then at the same time, I feel like the novel also pushes back against that with the fact that Binti ends up being like having so many of her cultural identifiers removed from her. But I think that ultimately, you know, the Ajiz is really what's most important to her. Like she's able to deal with the new hair situation, but it's really the fact that she's worried that she won't be able to create new Ajiz on this planet. And the fact that she runs out of it, that like most deeply shakes her and most deeply makes her feel like she's never going to be able to be connected to her culture and her identity again. So, like, on the one hand, she's forced to lose so many cultural identifiers, but then on the other hand, she's able to create new versions of her of the most important cultural identifier, no matter where she is in the world. So that was, like, a really nonsensical answer to that question. But those are just kind of the jumble of thoughts that I have. <laughs> That's okay. I'm not feeling completely sensical either right now. But... I understand what you're saying. When you were talking about, I'm glad that you brought up the fact that we're talking about people wanting to have their cultural identifiers, right? And then I'm happy that you brought up the fact that the Medusa did end up changing Binti without her consent. And I want to just read that passage really quickly when she finds out that she's been changed. And so I'm going to start from the chief who is explaining the choice. And you needed to prove to them that you were truly our ambassador, not prisoner, the chief said. It paused. I will return to the ship. We will make our decisions about Oku. It turned to leave and then turned back. Binti, you will forever hold the highest honor among the Medusa. My destiny is stronger for leading me to you. Then it left. I stood there, in my strange body. If I hadn't been deep in meditation, I would have screamed and screamed. I was so far from home. That passage is important to me because I think that it shows us two things, right? It shows us that what Binti has done, Binti being changed, has been done for a greater cause. It is a high honor. It is something that allows her to unite these two peoples, right? And to avoid war. And it has allowed her to right a wrong that was done, not necessarily by her people, but also kind of her people because she is a human. But it also really exemplifies the trauma that this has done for her, which I think is important because Binti does, in the really early on in the book, experience something incredibly traumatic which is mass death like she witnesses that and we talk about that a little bit but because there's so much happening in this tiny little novella we don't get to stop and take any time with the trauma that that's caused but this passage for me exemplifies it really well and I just I don't know what to make of it this idea that like yes this is a good thing but it's not something she consented to and it's it's causing her extreme distress even if she 
now learns how to live with it and becomes a better and stronger person because of it. She has been caused this great distress and you can't take that away. Yeah, yeah. This is so fucking obvious, but you just saying that really uh, hammered it home to me that the Medusa almost commit the crime to her that she's trying to rectify having been done to them. Yeah. And I guess intent here maybe is important. Not that I would sanction anyone experiencing something to their body that they don't consent to. But I do think that the reason why it's included, right, and the reason why the Medusa don't come out of this novella looking like evil creatures for having done this is because their intent has, you know, a good purpose versus, like, the stealing of somebody's stinger, right? You're, like, de-weaponizing a, a person or a creature. So I don't, I don't know what to make of it. I think that it's, I think that when it comes to the intent thing, it's not even necessarily that for me so much as it is that the intent was so that she could, A, understand them without the godstone, but also because she had to look like she was genuinely their ambassador. Like there was a lot of things happening there, but I think that conversely what makes what happens with the museum situation feel so different and so evil is because it was just there essentially as a unique artifact that they could learn from. So it, it reminds me back again to like othering in the extreme, right? Like this is a specimen that's not part of a body that we get to just take apart and try and understand outside of context, outside of culture. Um, and to a certain extent, I think that's ultimately what happens to Binti too, but it doesn't have necessarily that like clinical lack of context, lack of humanity that's ascribed to it in the same way to me that it feels like the chief stinger does, if that makes sense. Um, and I think something else that goes along with that passage that's really important to note too is, uh, in my book at least, Harmony and I have different editions of this. Uh, right after that passage, Harmony just reads, it says... It was said that a human tribal female from a distant blue planet saved the university from Medusa terrorists by sacrificing her blood and using her unique gift of mathematical harmony and ancestral magic. Tribal. That's what they called the humans from ethnic groups too remote and uncivilized to regularly send students to attend Uzma Uni. Which I feel like gets at almost everything that's happening here by continuing to call the Medusa terrorists, which they are but like then we see a different side of what they're like looking for and also the fact that as much as binti was able to connect with the people her peers on the ship she's still viewed as other when she gets to the university probably even more so for the fact that she has tentacle hair now um and the fact that at the university just because they made the decision to allow Okwu to attend and also to hail Binti as a hero doesn't fix all of the other injustices and microaggressions as well. I feel like that's all tied into the conversation that we were having somehow. <laughs> no, I think that 
that is okay so we were talking a little bit about how intent could could matter but i think that that i think that this ties in for me what you're talking about this idea that like these injustices still incur with this this contrast that we see where this guy thinks that the chief thinks that he's giving this great honor to binti and binti is viewing it as body horror essentially and i think that that dichotomy still plays out throughout the ending of this novel. Like we had this, it seemed kind of neat, right? It seemed unrealistic to what would happen in the real world, which is this museum giving back this thing that they had stolen. Um, But we're still dealing with all of these other things and all of this other oppression that hasn't been rewritten. And I think too, as you were talking, I noticed from from what you were saying, essentially, that this scene is important in part because change isn't always consensual. And that feels weird to say because I think that in the, the narrative of the book, like what sh- happened to Binti should have been consensual. And I'm mad for her that it wasn't. But I think that it's important because all of these factors have changed her and that's kind of how the real world works sometimes we don't have control of our our environment and she is a better person who knows more who understands how to empathize more from all of this experience but the world at large even though she was able to right one wrong is still kind of the same and I think that's pretty realistic I agree I think that as much as the ending ties up neat, there is also a part of me that feels like a big university, a big museum like that. It's much easier to take the way that looks good optically by accepting a new student and giving back a prized artifact, repatriating a prized artifact, than it is to do the actual work to make that deep systemic change. And this is a, a trilogy with a, another book sort of attached to it, uh, which I'm planning on reading all of them. And I'm interested to see if we see the rest of that. This is a trilogy? Oh, yeah. That's why we have different editions. Because because I have all four books in mine. Did you read all four books? No, only the first one for this. (laughs) But I'm going to. Um, But I think the second thing is what I was trying to get at at the beginning. Which is that change. Binti feels in control of the growth and the change that she's doing at the beginning of the novel. And feels like she has... Like, she understands the risks. And this novel, to a certain extent, does emphasize the fact that in the real world, sometimes life does just come at you fast. And shit happens that you wish didn't. Sometimes, like for Binti, it's extraordinarily traumatic. And it takes a long time how to learn to move on from that. But we don't always have control over what changes us and what forces us to grow. Yeah. And I think, too, on a hopeful note, like you were mentioning before with the edgies, is that she is able to, like, even though she ends up running out from the edgies she made from Earth, she's able to make new edgies on this home planet. And she thinks that it won't be healing because one of the important things about the edgies is that it is medicinal to the Medusa. And that's one of the things that allows her to link with Medusa and form this alliance. 
Um, but yeah, she believes that it won't be healing when she creates this new Ajis. And then it is. It is healing. So it has the same intent, even though it's not exactly the same, even though it's a different substance and it's from a different planet. She's able to take her traditions and create something new and something that is still healing and important and medicinal and spiritual. And she's able to be a new person now. And I think that at the end of this novel, she isn't completely reckoned with her trauma or reckoned with this um, very fast pace of change that is happening for her. But we start to see her try and we, yeah, yeah. I think that there's something really bittersweet about the idea that change can come at you in so many different ways and feel so fundamental and feel like you've been moved so far from your identity but you can still find ways to stay true to your values and stay true to who you are. That to me, I feel like really felt like part of the significance of the Aegis at the end, especially in the fact that it was still medicinal was the fact that like everything about Binti has changed. You know, she doesn't have her hair anyway. She, she's got uh, this whole slew of experiences, all this new trauma. She's working with different materials, like you were saying, but the core of it, the core of that identity value is still the same even in these changed circumstances and it's like both hopeful and not to me if that makes sense like I I just think bittersweet is the word that it makes me feel because at the one on the one hand I'm I'm glad for her that she's still able to cling to that and like that is still so such that she's still able to have that core value and that core moment of cultural identity and expression and then also the bitter part of it is the fact that it feels like other parts, the, the parts that she didn't consent to still shouldn't have happened and did anyways. And like, that's where the whole thing gets all wrapped up for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, uh, that's everything I think I have to say. I think that you articulated that really well. It's just kind of, it is bittersweet at the end, which I think is realistic. Yeah. I think so too, which I was impressed by because, you know, this is a very short novella where you're really just thrown into the world and it really gives you a lot of layers to think about as you unpick them all. I think there's nothing, a core for is really good because there's nothing, there's not like a wasted word or a wasted sentence in this story. I think it's all very much designed to look one way on the surface and then the more you think about it the more it's like oh wait but what if it's also saying this and what if it's also saying this i like it she's hemingway in that way except i bet that she doesn't beat her wives yeah i would i would be willing to bet that too do you want to wrap up or is there anything else that you want to talk about in terms of this novella yeah you know i think i'm good there was one or two other things that i had initially thought about but i I don't think it really fits in with the rest of our conversation and feels very peripheral now so i'm good uh do we think that this is a feminist book i think yes even though the only woman we really know is Binti, it's mostly from her perspective. But I think that I think that when we're talking about feminism, right, we're we're here to try and make a more equitable world. And I think this book talks a lot about that. But I also think that skills like empathy are often feminized and that's not necessarily the best thing in the world, but I think that y- using empathy as a central skill to deal with conflict 
is kind of inherently feminist because of the world we live in and because the world is patriarchal and skills like empathy are feminized and therefore deemed less worthy. (laughs) So yes, I think in that way, it is most certainly feminist. I agree. I feel like it's a novel about a woman, a young woman wrestling with her identity and that's inherently feminist. And I think that while this novel doesn't have a ton to do with gender it does in subtle ways comment on it. I think it's it goes even farther than just the empathy thing. You know, it's also a novel where it's not strange for a woman to be good at math. You know, like this this woman is an extraordinary mathematician, which is small, but is still one of the things that is so beaten into girls that like you're not going to be good at math and science because you're a girl. Um, and also in the few moments that we see where Binti is interacting with other humans, there is a lot of female solidarity. The friend group she makes at the very beginning is all girls and they really are able to like bond together very quickly, even though we don't see it for very long. And at the very, very end, she does end up calling home and her mother is the first person to pick up, which I think also like leans feminist to me so I agree with you that this is a feminist story even though it doesn't necessarily comment a ton explicitly on gender roles and dynamics yeah yeah I agree what you reading what am I reading I just started reading uh witches in a crumbling empire which is a book of poetry about the end of the world essentially um and witchcraft and oh, oh, I'm also reading uh, something Danny Brown. Is it Get a Clue, Danny Brown? Oh, isn't it Take a Hint, Danny Brown? Yes, Take a Hint, da- Danny Brown is. And I'm also reading that. And I've been audiobooking Frankenstein. I'm not very far along. And I'm also reading Children of Blood and Bone. Wow, you got a lot going on there. Yeah. I'm reading Children in Blood- of Blood and Bone by Tommy Adiemi. And probably right after this, we'll probably continue in the rest of the Binti trilogy because I'm into it and now I want to know what's happening. I'm jealous. I didn't know there were other books. I don't think I remembered when we were planning this season. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe next season we can circle back. I bought the wrong edition. Um, Do we have homework this week? Um, Okay, my homework. My homework is to be more receptive to change and to, I I think that I'm a pretty forward thinking person and that I'm always looking for like what comes next, but I have a lot of trouble like staying in the present. And I think that the looking forward to what comes next can be very change uh, driven and can be like mindful of change. But I also want to, I mean, I don't know, guys, the world is hard right now. And I'm, it's like, it's hitting me right now. You know, I guess that's just what happens these days. Like you, you have some okay days and then you have like, oh fuck, this is the world we live in days. And I'm having the oh fuck days. So I think that like, I want to just let myself feel that, that oh fuckness and really sit with it for a while. and be receptive to how it changes me um and I think that I can maybe harness more change and growth if I'm able to just like sit there and be present with it yeah 
that's my homework. Yeah, I have kind of similar homework this week. For context, because this episode comes out in a couple of weeks, we're we're currently a week and out a week out from the new presidential inauguration. And I think that my homework is also a little bit more selfish than it usually is in the fact that like I kind of just want to get through the next week without having a mental breakdown about the stress and anxiety leading up to that event. But also I think especially prioritizing checking in and doing my best to take care of the people of color in my life because as much as I'm fucking stressed about this I only have you know a a partial clue of how it feels to have white supremacists you know storm the capital and and threaten to do it for days on end in all 50 states so as much as I usually try and make homework kind of big I think it's going to be closer to home for me this week and just trying to take care of myself and my friends and my family, especially those who are even more personally affected by what's going on right now than I am. I think partially it's also the place I can make the most impact, you know? Big work and big change is super possible, but it takes a really long time, and I know that I can have impact for the people that I care about. Boy, can you just go back? You were talking about big change, and then you you cut off and got all robot-y. Oh, I was just saying that big change and big impact is really possible. And I think that Harmony and I have been prioritizing that a lot, especially in our homework for the past couple of years. But right now, I think personally, I can just like make the most change and the most impact in my inner circle, you know, and just like taking care of of the people that I really care about at this specific juncture. I understand. I got most of that. I got enough of that where if your audio ends up being as bad as it is on my end, um, I can smush it together and make Great. make it make sense. <laughs> Do you know what we're reading next week? I don't have the document up. <laughs> uh, I think you're asking what we're reading, so I'm gonna I'm gonna find out real quick. Um, let's see, season two overview. So next week. We are reading, where are we? Next week, we've got a poetry episode. And I'm not sure what poetry, what, what, which poetry it's going to be. We've recorded two. Which, which one are we doing next week, Maggie? Are the we airing? But I don't remember what it was called. Off yeah, the top So we're doing a poem next week. Um, Keep your eyes peeled. Hopefully I'll post that in the scheduled episode. If not, you'll just have to read it before (laughs) you listen. Okay, so that's it for now, folks. Bye! Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash rgbc and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel-girls-book-club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter. And you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.